We'll start with a poem, author unknown. The master was searching for a vessel to use. On the shelf there were many, which one would he choose? Take me, cried the gold one. I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value and I do things just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest. And for someone like you, master, gold would be the best. Unheeding, the master passed on to the brass. It was wide-mouthed and shallow and polished like glass. Here, here, cried the vessel. I know I will do. Place me on your table for all men to view. Look at me, called the goblet of crystal so clear. My transparency shows my content so dear. Though fragile am I, I will serve you with pride, and I'm sure I'll be happy your house to abide. The master came next to a vessel of wood, polished and carved, it solidly stood. You may use me, dear master, the wooden bowl said, but I'd rather you used me for fruit, not for bread. Then the master looked down and saw a vessel of clay. Empty and broken, it helplessly lay. No hope had the vessel that the, mitre, the, the master might choose to cleanse and make whole, to fill and to use. Ah, this is the vessel I've been hoping to find. I will mend and use it and make it all mine. I need not the vessel with pride of itself, nor the one who is narrow to sit on the shelf, nor the one who is big-mouthed and shallow and loud, nor one who displays his content so proud. Not the one who thinks he can do all things just right, but this plain earthly vessel filled with my power and might. And gently he lifted the vessel of clay, mended and cleansed it and filled it that day. Spoke to it kindly, there's work you must do. Just pour out to others as I pour into you. What a great reminder of the kind of people that God uses. A number of years ago, in fact, in the early 1800s, Robert Murray McChain, who was a well-known pastor and poet, he wrote a letter to a young pastor who was seeking advice for the ministry. And in the letter, he wrote these words. I came across this when I was a young pastor, and I kept it on my desk as a reminder for my own life. He wrote these words, in great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talent that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. As we close our time in 1 Peter together, Peter begins the last chapter, chapter five, as he's writing to these persecuted Christians who are experiencing pain, who, who may be on the verge of wanting to give up. And, and this letter is, Paul, is Peter's plea not to give up. And he reminds them chapter after chapter of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace available to them. And he begins this last chapter by reminding them and us 
of the kind of people God uses. And he does so in advice that he gives to the shepherds when he talks about who shepherds are, who pastors are. I know that I may be, or maybe there's a few out there that have pastored, but uh, I know that you aren't necessarily a pastor, but I think that these words of, of what a spiritual leader, for us to broaden it, of what kind of person God wants to use. So let's look at, uh, let's start there. And we're gonna look at tonight, we'll move on from that then. We're gonna look at four closing challenges from First Peter. As he wraps up his letter, four closing challenges. And the first one is about spiritual leadership. Look at verses one through four. It says, so I exhort the elders among you as a, a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now we have a lot to cover tonight, and there is a lot I would love to say about what pastors are supposed to be, not what necessarily, in some instances, we've made them to be in the American church. But at the end of the day, a pastor is not a CEO, a pastor is not a charismatic figure that wows the people, a pastor is a shepherd. And I would suggest that anyone that is a spiritual leader, which by the way is all of us. I mean, I, I'm not a leader. Really, do you have kids? You're a spiritual leader. Your husband, you're a spiritual leader. You have someone that looks up to you, you're a spiritual leader. And so while this is specifically to pastors, I want to just broaden the, at least the, the principles for all of us. So here's the first of four challenges that I want to give you tonight as we close out this letter. Number one, lead from the bottom up. Be a person that leads from the bottom up. I want to share with you the difference between the top-down leaders and bottom-up leaders straight from the text. So I'm going to give you a couple of them. We got them up here on the screen. Okay? First of all, top-down leaders, you know, those that, you know, I'm large and in charge type, those that think being a leader is like, like, like you know, just marching, you know, the barking out orders to people. Here's some, here's some demonstrations of a, of a top-down leader. Under compulsion, oftentimes top-down leaders have impure motives. All right? uh, Peter is saying that. That's not why you lead under compulsion. Whatever reason for that compulsion, all right? that's not the right motive. You, you know, P Paul said what the right motive was. He says, it is the love of Christ that compels me. I serve and I wash feet out of my love for Christ. And when that love flows through me, then it makes me want to love like Jesus. And Jesus was a feet-washing leader. Amen? Oftentimes, top-down leaders have impure motives. Secondly, and oftentimes these are what fuels the motives, top-down leaders are self-centered. Peter says, you're not to lead for sh uh, shameful gain. It is not for, for what you get out of it. A real leader, 
A bottom-up leader isn't thinking about how will this benefit me? What do I get out of this? How does this you know, help, help some insecure issue? I, listen, I'm gonna tell you, <laughs> these are lessons I've had to wrestle through in my own life as a spiritual leader, and still do. But a top-down leader is a self-centered leader. It's for their own gain. Top-down leaders use power and authority as a weapon. Peter makes it clear there's to be no domineering. There's not to use your power and authority as a weapon to make people do what you want them to do, which oftentimes what you want them to do is something for you. That's not what we've been called to. We've been called to be bottom-up leaders, and Peter says what a bottom-up leader is. A bottom-up leader cares for those they lead. To shepherd the flock, again, I know this is, I don't want to take it out of context, I know this is referring to elders, pastors in the church. But as a spiritual leader, I think the principle is still true for any of us, that any, any, any oversight you have in whatever area, do you truly care about the people or do you only care about what they'll do for you? We have seen some big names, and I don't even need to mention them by name, but you probably know. There have been many big name celebrity pastors who have fallen, in particular, over the last five years. And what's in, interesting is, is back in the day when I first started in ministry, you know how a pastor, well, you know, uh, was fired, it was, you know, they either had sexual improprieties or, or, you know, financial fraud. What's interesting is that a number of the high-profile pastors who've been forced to resign or fired was because of pride, because of bullying their staff and their people. Boy, oh boy, what have we made the American church when we have pastors who bully? You know what pastors are to do? Weep for their people, serve their people, equip them to do the ministry, to shepherd them, to care. Bottom-up leaders care for those they lead. Secondly, bottom-up leaders lead as they are being led. They are spirit-led leaders. To be a spiritual leader is to be a spirit-led leader, as God would have you. Not, not your vision, your dreams, what you want to accomplish, what you want to do. A bottom-up leader listens to the voice of God. They're led by the Spirit of God as they come alongside and love and shepherd others. And the third thing, a bottom-up leader leads by example. Being examples. I've said it many times, discipleship is caught much more than it's taught. We show them how to serve by serving, not leading. We are obsessed with leadership in the American church. I'm gonna let you in on a little, little secret. Maybe you didn't know this, maybe you did. Do you know that Jesus rarely ever talked about leadership? It's a spiritual gift. A person should exercise if they have the gift of leadership. But you know that Jesus rarely talked about leadership? You know what Jesus talked about all the time? Discipling people and shepherding people. Serving people. 
Serving and discipling is what he's called spiritual leaders to do. In fact, I'm almost to the point, I don't want to use the word leadership anymore. When was the last time there was a conference, not on church leadership, but when was the last time there was a conference on church servantship? A conference devoted on how to better wash the feet of the people you're pastoring. And again, I'm a pastor, so that's my world. But for all of us, the principle's the same. We lead by serving. That's what Jesus is looking for. Not great leaders, great servants who may exercise their spiritual gift of leadership, but are obsessed not with leadership, they're obsessed with serving. That's a spiritual leader, amen? We lead from the bottom up, okay? A second challenge that Peter gives us in verses five through seven, let's take a look. He says, likewise, and it's, it's still part of this thought, that, we, that uh, but I wanna use it kind of in the second, second point here. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So if you're younger, you know, be subject to the spiritual leaders in your church. Clothe yourselves. Now notice this though, don't miss this, all of you. This is no longer just if you're younger. <laughs> all of you with humility, Toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The second challenge I want to leave you with from this book is walk in the way of humility. And by the way, those go together, the first and second point. If you learn to walk in the way of humility, then it'll be much easier to be a bottom-up kind of leader. (laughs) Humility is not thinking less of yourself, as C.S. Lewis famously put it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. (laughs) Humility literally means lowly. It means taking the posture with people, that I'm going to come under people. We used to say to our kids back in the day, how do you spell joy? Jesus, others, you. You want a life of real joy? Jesus, others, you. Think like that. That's humility. It's coming underneath people. Hudson Taylor is one of the most famous missionaries in in the history of Christendom. One time he was scheduled to speak at a large church in Melbourne, Australia. The moderator of the service introduced the missionary in eloquent and glowing terms. He, He told the large congregation all that Taylor had accomplished in China. And then he presented him as our illustrious guest. Taylor stood quietly for a moment and then opened his message by saying, dear friends, I am, a, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. Why did God do such great things through Hudson Taylor? Because he understood in comparison to God, he was but a little servant serving an illustrious master. I think in just those verses I read, I think that, that Peter gives us a three, or excuse me, four things to understand about humble people. The first one is this, humble people submit to others. When it says be subject to elders, 
toward, and toward, be humble towards one another, to subject. Humble people are willing to submit to others. They're willing to put themselves under someone else, receive correction, receive orders. Many of you know that, that launching a church and, and, and I was called and asked to be the lead pastor. But it's my great prayer that, that all of us are ministers and that all I do is simply exercise the gifts that God's given me. You know, and I, listen, I, I struggle with pride. I'm gonna be the first to admit that. So when I share this, I want you to know um, that I'm sharing this because this is who I wanna be. And, and, and when you start with pride, you have to like intentionally choose to do humble things. <laughs> I got, you know, the group of, of, of men who started the church and then asked me the pastor, I, you know, I said, listen, we all share the load. I'm gonna submit <laughs> in these areas that aren't my strength. Like the building, where the building we have, I don't know anything about buildings. I take my orders from Richard. <laughs> I don't say, I'm the lead pastor. How dare you ask me to do that? I shout to not do that. I even threw in a little shout there. Well, I don't know why. <laughs> no. He gives me an order. I'm like, yes, sir. I'm going to do it. Because I put, he's in charge <laughs> of the building, of helping us get it ready. Right? I'm going to tell you, there's something liberating in that, by the way. <laughs> not having to be top dog. There's something in, in, in submitting to one another that's beautiful. And, and may, I, may I take it a step further? Um, Jesus submitted the God of the universe. Do you know that he submitted to authorities, human authorities on earth? And ultimately he submitted to the heavenly father, right? The garden, what a beautiful example. Lord, if you take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Humble people learn how to submit. And if you struggle submitting, put yourselves in positions where you need to submit, where you have to submit. Secondly, humble people experience greater grace. Peter says, and he's quoting from other places of scripture, he gives grace to the humble. Some of you are probably familiar with it. He who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. But he who humbles himself will what? Be exalted. What's greatness in the kingdom of God? Servantship. What's greatness in the kingdom of God? Humility. And that's the third thing. They're exalted. Humble people submit to others, experience greater grace, are exalted God exalts them. He uses them in the kingdom in greater ways. And the last thing is this, humble people experience victory over worry. Humble people cast their anxieties on him. You may not connect this, but I connect this to humility. Why? Because people who are proud don't think they need any help. But humble people aren't afraid to not only cast their anxieties on God, but also others are willing to say, hey, I'm not doing all right. Will you pray over me? I think the, the church of God, the body of Christ is at a stronger 
at the strongest, not when we have it all together and everything goes right in the church and the service and all the lights and the perfect music and didn't miss a key there and didn't do any of that. I, I think it's most beautiful when, when everyone comes in just being honest and people are willing to say, I'm not okay. And people woof, come around them and pray over them. That's the kind of church I envision. Humble, normal people who realize the only great person in our church is Jesus Christ who's leading it. Humble people admit when they're struggling and ultimately they cast it upon God and they experience victory over their worry. We need to walk in the way of humility. A lot more I could say there, but still got a ways to go here. Third thing, look at verse eight through 11. So let's review. We lead from the what? We lead from the bottom up. Walk in the, we are to walk in the way of humility. Here's the third one, verse eight through 11. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Truth of the matter is we probably should have broken up this chapter into two weeks because it's very meaty, okay? But I needed to finish it in this week. So I'm gonna leave some on the table there uh, just be, for the sake of time. But when you look at that as a whole, I think the third challenge that Peter is giving us is that we need to fight the good fight. We need to fight the good fight. We need to be serious about the battle, the unseen battle that's waging right now all around us. And I, I don't know, may, maybe in my entire lifetime, maybe it, it's more than ever feeling this sense of major warfare going on in our world today. And we need to stop messing around. We need to stop like, you know, obsessed with my blessings, how God's gonna bless me, bless me, bless me. And we need to start getting serious about the fight that's going on, the spiritual warfare. And put the armor on of Ephesians 6 and get serious about reaching as many people for the gospel before Christ returns, because in my opinion, he's returning soon. And we need to get serious. Can we have fun? Of course. Can we laugh? Of course. But we better be serious-minded about the kingdom of God and give ourselves to that. I had the opportunity to take four months off if I wanted to. I lasted two weeks. That's all I could do. Why? I want to be about the kingdom. <laughs> I want to go at it until my day on earth is done. I want to fight the good fight. National Geographic ran an article about the Alaskan bull moose. Our family had the opportunity this past summer to go to Colorado and we saw like up close and personal uh, moose and little baby, what do you call them, calves or I don't know what they're called, baby mooses or whatever. 
<laughs> I mean, incredible creatures up close when you, when you see them. But anyways, um, so they ran this article about the Alaskan bull moose. The males of the species, they battle for dominance during the fall breeding season, literally going head to head with antlers crunching together as they collide. Often the antlers, often the antlers, uh, their only weapon that they really have are broken. And that ensures automatic defeat. The heftiest moose with the largest and strongest antlers triumph. Therefore, the battle, catch this, the battle fought in the fall is really won during the summer when the moose eat continually. The one that consumes the best diet for growing antlers and gaining weight will be the heavyweight in the fight. Those that eat inadequately sport weaker antlers and less bulk. What is my point? My point is we got to stop feasting on the things of the world. Time is short and we have to arm ourselves appropriately. We need to dive into God's word. We need to stand firm in the faith. We need to study his word tenaciously. Not just when we feel like it. We need to study it every day because we need it. We need it for our own Christ-like development and we need it. Quite honestly, as, as Paul said, a weapon to fight the evil one, to resist temptation. Are we built up for the spiritual battle? Are we prepared for Satan's attacks? Are we prepared when Satan's got a hold of someone we love? Are we ready to dive in? Are we just feasting on the world and settling for a comfortable, safe form of Christianity that one day when we stand in the presence of Christ, we'll realize how wrong we were to feast there. Peter says, we need a game plan for fighting. And the game plan is this, be focused. Be focused, verse eight. That's what verse eight is about. Be focused. Be serious-minded, man. Be alert. What Satan's up to. Secondly, be firm. Firm in the faith. That's what the illustration was all about. Are you firm? Are you solid? Have we grown flabby because of our, our diet, the stuff we're watching and listening to? Or are we in God's word? Are we praying? Do we have accountability? Are we serious about the spiritual disciplines in our lives so that we're firm, we're built up, we're strong soldiers? To be firm in the fight. And number three, but be encouraged. <laughs> be encouraged. He reminds them, I'll just go back and reread it. That after you have suffered a little while, verse 10, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him will be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to just throw that in there because guess what? We're still going to lose some skirmishes. The war's been won, amen? 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 Okay, good enough. We're still going to lose some skirmishes. Till the day Christ returns. And we'll never lose again. 
How cool is that to, to know that there's a day you'll never have to apologize to anybody ever? <laughs> How cool is that to not have to come to God just like, I did it again, God, I'm so sorry for that never to happen. How great will that be someday to not just walk through the motions spiritually? I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. I've been a pastor for 28 years. I've been a, a Christ follower for 33, 34 years. 30, man, I think 34 years now. I gotta be honest with you. There are times where I've walked through the motions. I didn't want to, but I was just walking through the motions. Has anybody ever spiritually walked through the motions? Or is just, am I just the only ungodly sinner up here, right? Right, right, we all, right? I mean, those times you're like, man, I, I want to want to read God's word. Why don't I though? Why don't I feel close to God? How great will that be that, that every day is like the day before where you have a perfect relationship with Christ? Man, there is nothing wrong at thinking about heaven. That is not escapism. That is how your faith gets firm. That's how your hope is kept. That is how you're encouraged when you do fail to be reminded, okay, yes, I failed today. <laughs> but Christ hasn't given up on me and there's a day I'll never fail him again. And I'm gonna let you in on something. Even when we failed him, do you know we're still clothed in the righteousness of Christ in the eyes of God? He may have to correct us, as a loving father, but we are still positionally seen holy in his sight. I mean, is that awesome or what? This is the last night of the book. We gotta be fired up tonight. Isn't that awesome? Nah, whatever. <laughs> Got time for one more? You sure? All right. So he finishes with the final greeting. Our favorite part of any book is the final greeting as they mention names we've never heard of. Sometimes there's hidden jewels there though. Verse 12. By Silvanus, otherwise known as Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhort, so he, he in other words, Peter wrote it, but he wrote it uh, through Silas. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. I'll stop for just a second. This is very interesting. He, he says he's writing, that he's writing basically about the true grace of God. So what he's doing is he's summarizing this whole letter by saying, what I've written to you, everything that, I, so all the last 11 weeks, what I've written to you, it all, I can sum it all by the grace of God. <laughs> that what we've covered is a reminder of the grace of God. His divine favor, his willingness to give us what we don't deserve. <laughs> Do you know everything we have is because of the grace of God? Do you know that you're able to come in here, walk in here, have breath, breath, have a right mind because of the grace of God? Everything is by the grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, who's that? Not sure. Sends you greetings. It's a nickname, Babylon for somebody. And so does Mark, 
my son. So not his literal son, this is a spiritual son. John Mark, in other words, this is his name, the one who wrote the book of Mark, all right? It was someone that Peter had, had discipled as a young man. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let me give you the fourth point, and I want to tell you how I get the fourth point out of this. The last point is this, and, and I really want to just summarize our journey with this, these words of hope. And here it is, number four. Because of the grace of God, never give up. I mean, at the end of the day, if I had to like just summarize in just a few words the whole letter, I mean, it took 11 weeks to do it, but if I only had one sentence to summarize what Peter is saying in the book of 1 Peter, he is saying this, never give up. You're being persecuted, you're in pain, it doesn't seem fair, never give up. Because of the grace of God, never give up. Because he sent his son to die for you, never give up. Because his son rose from the dead and you have resurrection power, never give up. Because even in your worst moment, he sees you as his beloved son or daughter, so never give up. No matter how bad it gets, nothing, nothing will compare. Nothing good you've ever experienced will even come close to comparing what it will be like when he comes back for you. So never give up. All of those things that I mentioned are a demonstration of the grace of God. You and I didn't take an inch towards any of it. Christ did all the work. You know what grace is? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. And because of that, never give up. Whatever you're going through, whatever struggle you're facing, never give up. You have more spiritual power available to you than you probably even realize. John Mark, I've nicknamed John Mark. I call him the comeback kid. We learn about John Mark in Acts chapter 13. John Mark had quite the heritage. His mom was highly respected, part of the life of the apostles and the early Christians. His cousin was Barnabas, was a huge leader, an encouraging leader, and that was his cousin. I mean, think about this. John Mark was discipled by Barnabas and Peter. I mean, doesn't get much better than that. And so Barnabas says, I want to take John Mark, young man, but I'm going to take him on our, our missionary journey. Paul says, okay, let's do it. And I could take the time to read it, but in Acts chapter 13, things get hot. There is some major spiritual warfare going on. There's a magician and there's demon possession stuff and there's casting out and, and you know, demons and all of this stuff, you know, just your average Sunday morning, right? And uh, I mean, it's just like very intense spiritual warfare. And it says that John Mark abandoned them. It, it got too hot. It was too much. He got scared. He deserted them. Well, they come back from the journey, report to the church. They want to go back out. 
Barnabas, ever the encourager. His, his name literally means son of encouragement. Wants to give John Mark another chance and, 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 and Paul said, no way. He bailed on us. He's not ready. He doesn't have what it takes. <laughs> He's not going with us. Barnabas like, I really think he should go. Such a dispute over John Mark that these two great men of God separated ways and did two different ministries all because they couldn't agree on John Mark because he had bailed on them. And Paul did not want to give him another opportunity. Fast forward to 1 Peter and you have Mark. A number of years later who didn't give up. And Peter mentions him because he's still involved. He's still doing ministry. Peter is still breathing into him. Now, fast forward to the very end of Paul's life now. Not Peter, Paul's life. The one who refused to take John Mark with him. The end of his life, the end of his letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. He says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Because of the grace of God, never give up. At the end of Paul's life, he wanted John Mark with him. I've made a lot of mistakes over the years in my life and in ministry. But by the grace of God, I'll never give up. I'll keep learning. I'll keep growing. I'll keep getting up and wiping off the mess from my latest stumble. And I beg you and plead with you to do the same. Never give up. And it just could be that your stumbles, your failures, your mistakes are some of the greatest things that God's gonna use in your life to make you useful for ministry. By the grace of God, never give up. Father God, thank you uh, for incredible book, incredible words of encouragement from this book. And um, we're all gonna fail from time to time. We still possess a sin nature till you return. Thank you that you are God that doesn't give up on your children. Thank you, Father, that uh, the promise that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So we can stand firm in the faith. But that's gonna require each of us to walk in the way of humility. And when we do, you'll exalt us. You'll use us for kingdom impact. Father God, may we be a people that leave here tonight 
submitting to the words of scripture to walk in humility and never give up. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We hope you were encouraged by God's word today. You can join us each weekday morning for a five-minute fill-up. And for other teaching, writing, and training resources, don't forget to check out our website at uncagedbibleministry.com. The mission of Uncaged is to help people fall in love with the Word of God so they fall more in love with the God of the Word.